All right, if you have a a Bible with you, um, I'd like to draw your attention this morning to an Old Testament book that we're going to be considering over the next uh, few months, and it is the book of Esther. So you say, well, where is Esther? Well, um, I think maybe the easiest way to explain it, if you're somewhat unfamiliar with the Bible, is that you go to the very middle of the Bible and you crack it open. You probably might hit the book of Psalms or be near there. And then what you do is you turn back a few books to the book of Esther. So it goes Nehemiah, uh, Esther, Job, the long book of Job, and then the book of Psalms. So we'll be looking at Esther uh, chapter 1. And... Um, The reason why we're taking um, a look at this book, this is a book that's good to consider at the beginning of this year and will probably carry us through, I would say, the next two or three months, certainly leading us up to what we call the Lent season, leading up to the significant um, worship services that we have on Good Friday as well as Easter. And Esther's a good book to look at in the beginning of the year because it reminds us that God is never aloof. That wherever we are at in life, or wherever we are transitioning, and we're transitioning to a new building, which is kind of a big deal for us in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to put us in a new neighborhood with new opportunities, hopefully, from the Lord. And it's just a reminder as we move forward in the coming year that, that it is really the hand of God that is directing all things for our blessing, for our comfort, and a blessing to the nations. And this is really what the book of Esther Uh, at least one of the major themes of the book of Esther. So there are 10 chapters um, to this uh, book, and we're going to be having uh, about nine sermons on this. We're going to connect last sermon with chapters 9 and 10. But normally what we're going to do is we're going to take a chapter at a time. So I want to draw your attention now to Esther uh, chapter 1. I want to give you a brief historical context. You know, God's people of the Old Testament are the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And on many occasions, when I have preached, I've talked about uh, something that is fixed in the Jewish mind even today, and that's what's called the Babylonian captivity, where God's people had turned their backs on God for, for many, many years, and they would not turn back to the Lord. So God sent them into captivity in a land of Babylon, which is a very powerful nation at that time, for 70 long years. Babylon then was overtaken by Medo-Persia, and now God's people find themselves in Persia. And over time, they're giving some freedoms within which to live in the nation of Persia. And so rather than returning to their homeland, which they were allowed to do, nine-tenths of the people decided to stay where they are at because of some of the freedoms that they were afforded. That in itself is an act of disobedience. But God has not left his people. Oftentimes we find when we are disobedient, he's still good to us, and he still calls us to himself. So that's the basic context here, and God is going to use Esther for the blessing of his people. So, all right, chapter 1. Let's read together. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days... When King Ahasuerus, he's the king of Persia, sat on his throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor 
and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Vistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards those who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king Give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. So that's where we're going to end it, at chapter 1. Uh, bear in mind that in the original Hebrew language, as in the Greek language of the New Testament, there are no chapters and there are no verses. So we need to remember that the book of Esther, which revolves around this woman, Esther, 
Um, it's just one long story. It's like if you have a, if, if you have a, a child's book at home and you read your, your young child a, a story, typically in that story you don't find verses, you don't find chapters. You just read the story from beginning to end. Well, that's the way that the, the Bible was composed in the original language, but in order to divide things up for better understanding and comprehension, the Bible puts uh, chapters and verses. So we're, as I said, we're going to take a chapter at a time. We're going to take a look at chapter 1. Now, a few things about the book of Esther, and what I'm about to say now is, is probably something that is most well-known about the book of Esther. Some of you may know this, and I'm assuming a number of you do, but you may be here this morning, you may not know this. But it's interesting that the book of Esther never mentions the name of God. It's the only book in the Bible that just never mentions the name of God, and that's why when the canon of Scripture was originally considered, there were some who were wondering, should the book of Esther even be in the Bible, since that is the case? But they included it in the canon of Scripture for this very reason. Because though God's name is not mentioned, this, the hand of God, and the fingerprints of God, are all over this book from beginning to end. It's kind of like when you watch those detective shows and the detective goes into an apartment or goes into a house where a crime has been committed and the furniture is overturned and there's blood in the place and all that kind of stuff. And what do they do in the older shows? They sprinkle this stuff right to, in order to figure out where the, where the fingerprints are. So when you think of the book of Esther, think of that. Think of going into a room and seeing all these fingerprints Yet they're not the fingerprints of a violator or a murderer, but they're the fingerprints of a benevolent God. They're all over the place. So God is in this story, and we're going to be considering that. Another thing I want you to consider is this, that though we deal with the first chapter, you're not going to find the name of Esther anywhere. It's kind of funny, you know, you got, you got the book, and if you have your Bible with you, you take a look at the top of the Bible, and you see, all you see is Esther, so you figure this is about at least some woman, Right? But she's not even mentioned in the first chapter. But what we do find in the first chapter is another person who figures prominently in the book. And that's a king named Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is, is all over in uh, the book, and you really can't understand what Esther does here apart from Ahasuerus. So let's talk about Ahasuerus, whose name also, according to historians, is Xerxes. Here's a bio. Here's a bit of a background. It's important that we understand this. Um, Ahasuerus was king of Persia. And um, Persia at this time was an ascendant nation, a very, very powerful nation. And uh, Persia is uh, part of what we know as modern-day Iran today. So if you've ever dealt with Iranians, they will, they will be very quick to say, you need to understand as Westerners that we are not Arabians but we are Persians. One of the reasons why they say that is, number one, not only because in the world of Islam, which was not in effect at this time, but in the world of Islam, you have Shia Muslims in Persia, largely, and then you have Sunni Muslims in Saudi Arabia and other Arab lands. Okay? And you know, if you notice the geopolitical situation today, you notice oftentimes that they are, they are rubbing against each other. Right? And it's, there's, a, there's a, a lot of tension between the Shia and the Sunni Muslims. Well, it's a difference between Arabian culture also and Persian culture. And if you talk to Iranians as Persians, they have, they, they, um, they have a deep respect for their heritage and for their history. 
right, going back to this time. So here you have Ahasuerus, who is the king of this mighty nation of Persia. His, his kingdom is very, very large. In fact, the Bible tells us at the very beginning, in chapter 1, that this kingdom consisted of 127 provinces, so not just the nation of Persia, and it also spread from uh, all the way from uh, India to Africa into Ethiopia. So it's a, it's a large, large kingdom. Another thing we need to understand about Ahasuerus is that uh, he reigned for 21 years before he was assassinated by palace guards. Well, obviously he's not assassinated at this point. He's still living and he's ruling. Another thing about Ahasuerus when you consider the book of Esther and when you look at history, you see that Ahasuerus um, was very powerful and he was very influential, but he happened to be also very egotistical. Kids, that means he, he, he thought a lot about himself, right? And he was also, according to historians, rather um, emotionally unstable. A lot of emotional highs and, and lows, and, and, and we see this throughout the story as well. Final thing we need to know, and I'll be short with this because I already mentioned this, but the, God's people, the people of Israel, and they're, by the way, they're never called the nation of Israel here, but only the Jews. The Jews are in Persia, and they remained in Persia, and right now they're under the domination of the Persian Empire, although they're given certain freedoms to live in that land. So this is, this is the background of the story, right, in the background of Ahasuerus. So let's get into the story itself. And, you know, when you, it, it took us a while to read chapter one, and if I was to simply do strict expositional preaching and say we're just going to go verse by verse, it's going to take us probably about two or three hours. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to touch on the major aspects of the story. And what I want to do is I want to tell this story or retell the story, focus on some major themes in this first chapter, and then I want to leave the, more the, the application toward the end. So um, what I want you to do is I want you to kind of stick with me as much as you can for the next maybe 15 minutes or so as we look at the story itself. Okay? So the story begins with this very powerful and influential king Ahasuerus who throws a party for his people. And this is not any ordinary party. This is not like a night gig where everybody just gets together. But this is a party that goes beyond just a few days or even a few weeks. It lasts 180 days. So it's approximately a six-month-long party. This is a big deal. And it's for the military officials of the land, for princes, for nobles. Um, there's even a part of this party that lasts for just general people who are either important or not so important for the kingdom. So it's this powerful and influential king who's, who's playing Mr. Benevolent at this point, Mr. Gracious at this point. So he throws this big party for these um, individuals. And um, when, you, when you think of the party, in a sense, think of Hollywood. There's fame, there's fortune, there's fashion, and there's free-flowing wine. And it's interesting in connection with um, the matter of wine, that when you take a look at the story, how does it put in uh, verse 8? It says this, the drinking was according to this edict that there is no compulsion. So think about this party. There's, there's opulence, there's wealth, there's golden goblets of different sizes and special curtains and everything. This is like 
going to New York City and going to Trump Tower, right, or going to some of the casinos that Trump puts together in, uh, you know, Jersey City or whatever. I mean, it's, 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 and on the boardwalk, it's just a total opulence. And the wine, the drink is flowing. And then he says here that it was according to this edict that there is no compulsion. You say, what does that mean? It means that basically the king is saying, when you come to my party, if you want to drink little, that's fine. If you want to drink a lot, that's fine. Basically, as we say today, yeah, you just, you, you do you. You do you. How do you feel like doing it? Well, as you can imagine, in a, in a, in a context like that, um, you're going to get people who are controlling themselves and those who are going to get somewhat inebriated. And the reason why I bring that out is because that's what happened to King Ahasuerus. He was drinking a bit too much. He might have been pretty inebriated, or he might, uh, as we say today, had a good buzz going on. But whatever the case is, he's letting his guard down a bit. And he thinks it might be wise at that point to call upon and really order his wife, whose name is Queen Vashti, whose name means most beautiful in the Persian language, to come and display herself before the men at this party. Now we need to bear in mind that, and it's really what's going on here, if you read the story carefully, that there's two parties going on. There's one for the king and the men, and there is another party for Queen Vashti and the women. So they're not mixed together. So the king, being somewhat inebriated, orders his eunuchs, seven eunuchs, to go to his wife and say to her, the king has ordered you to come before the presence of the men at his party. Now the men, uh, eunuchs, being, uh, I'll put this delicately, uh, emasculated, are going to pose no threat, sexual threat, to the queen. That's why they had eunuchs at that time as uh, cohorts to the queen and carers for the queen. So these eunuchs go to the queen and they lay out to her the order that she's to come before the king. And that she's to wear, if you notice the passage, she's to wear her royal crown. Now, some scholars will say that when the king ordered to her to come with her royal crown, basically what he's saying is come with your royal crown, but the implication is don't come with a royal veil that covers the face. I want the men to see your beauty. Other scholars say it could be the case that when he asks her to come with the royal crown, he's basically saying come with the royal crown and nothing else. Whatever the case is, the king, we need to understand, is not really caring for his wife at that time. He's not concerned about her and her reputation and what she's feeling at the point. The king is being egotistical. It's all about pride. It's all about him. So basically, queen, come with your royal crown before the men because what I want them to do is see more than your beauty, but behind the scenes he's really saying, I want these men to respect me. I want the glory ultimately to come to me so that the men will say, look at the king. Look at the kind of wife he's got. So the order goes out to Queen Vashti. And what does she say? It ain't happening. I'm not your trophy wife. So she says no to the king. Now, bear in mind that this is not a, a doctrinal portion of the scripture, like epistolary literature, or the letters that we find in the New Testament or other places of the Old Testament. What this is, is this is a story. This is what we call a narrative. 
So we need to treat it as a story. And oftentimes in good stories, what you find is you find a point of tension in the story that, that demands to be resolved. And that's what we got going on here. So we got this point of tension, and this woman is saying, no, no, I'm not, I'm not coming. I think a lot of people today would, uh, you know, uh, who are maybe part of what we call women's movement today or part of the Me Too movement would say, yeah, you go, girl. You don't have to follow the king. Good for you. But what the Christian does when they come to a point like this in the story and when they come to the story from a Christian perspective, they they dig a little bit deeper, and what they understand is there is a very stark contrast between what we call the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And those two kingdoms, in terms of perspective and ethic, are about as diametrically opposed as possible. So when you take a look at the story, you see that the kingdom of God and it's Christians who are part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the Christian ethic is not this. The kingdom of God is not using others for one's own purposes, but it's about serving others. It's not about depravity. It's about purity. It's not about inebriation, getting all drunk up. It's about self-control. It's not about sexual exploitation but sexual protection. It's not about human degradation, but it's about human flourishing. You see these differences. So when, it, when a person becomes a Christian, or a person is, by the grace of God, born into a Christian family, they grow up in a different context than the world. And what a good Christian family does, and what a good Christian marriage does, is they emphasize what we call the antithesis. They emphasize contrast, whereby that Christian family or that Christian individual or that couple says, you know what, we belong to Jesus who calls us to be in the world for the sake of the mission to the world and be a light to the nations of the world. But at the same time, it's this very Jesus who says, but I don't want you to become synthesized or deeply so embedded in the world that you're no longer following me. That's the contrast. So in the Christian ethic, in contrast to what we see in the partying atmosphere here, the Christian learns to say no to the things that he needs to say no to, and yes to the things that he needs to say yes to. And the only way that you develop that contrast lifestyle is if the Spirit of God opens your eyes to that, whereby you realize you need to commit your life to Jesus, and with that comes a life of human joy and flourishing. But what do we see here in the story? God has not opened the eyes of Ahasuerus, because if he did, when the king, queen says no, he would have realized that he was actually calling the queen to humiliate herself for the sake of his own pride the sake of his own status. But does he do that? Does he repent? No. What's the answer? Retribution. Payback. The queen needs to pay for what she did. So, what does the king do? 
King Ahasuerus calls a number of men together who are his personal advisors, counselors. He gathers them all together. He says, what are we going to do now? This is what the queen has done. What am I going to do? So these men counsel together and they advise the king. And there's one particular man whose name is Memekin who pipes up and basically says this. King, you need to realize that um, what Queen Vashti has done has enormous personal and political consequences. For, for you and for the kingdom. Because if this queen continues to refuse to come into your presence and disobeys your order, the other women of the kingdom are going to hear about this and then they're going to feel that they can do the same thing to their husbands or other male officials in the land. If that happens... Decency and good order and stability is thrown out the window, and now you have instability, really insurrection, and we cannot afford that in the kingdom. So king, this is my advice to you, that you initiate a law called the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be reversed, which cannot be revoked, and what you need to do is you need to shut her down, and you need to tell her through this law of the Medes and the Persians, that she is not to come into the presence of the king. King Herodotus thinks about this, and he says, in so many words, I will take that advice. So he issues the law. Now, one other thing here, and then I want to I draw attention to more the... the uh, application of the story because they're wondering, okay, what, is, what does this really have to do with us? I understand the story now, but what does it have to do with us? There's an important point in um, verse 19. Yeah, verse 19, where, where Memekin says to the king, and remember, there's damage control going on here in the kingdom. He says, issue that law that the queen... Queen Vashti is not to come into your presence anymore. That'll send a message loud and clear to the other women. But also this, king, what you need to do is not only shut down Vashti, but you need to open up the royal position to another woman. And in other words, you need to replace your queen. Now I want you to pause here for just a moment. Because remember I said at the very beginning of the sermon, at least the introduction to the scripture reading, that we see the fingerprints of God all over the place. And we see the hand of God directing all things. So when Memukin, who's not acting just on behalf of himself, but unwillingly on behalf of God, when Memukin says, have her be replaced, that is Vashti, with another queen. Basically, What's happening is that indeed there is going to be someone who replaces that queen. In the next chapter, we're given her name. What is her name? Hadassah. That's the Hebrew. But her Persian name is Esther. And God is orchestrating all things put, to put Esther in this position because God's plan all along for he knows all things and he orchestrates all things because he is sovereign he's going to put Esther into this position so that in time 
God will use her to prevent, as we're going to see, the annihilation of God's people. And I'm going to spare you those details of how that's going to transpire, but we're going to look at that in the coming weeks. So, for the sake of time, we draw to a close. And we say again, what does this really have to do with us? And there's a number of things that, that I could mention at this point, a lot of different applications. I want to leave you just one thing for the sake of memory, and that is this. Despite appearances, whether it be in terms of world history, our own personal lives, or even in the context of the story, despite appearances, listen to this, God is, is never aloof, and God is never on the sidelines, but God is, is watching every detail of our lives and of world history, but he's doing more than just watching. You can do that on the sidelines. But God, as a divine conductor, is moving all things forward according to his plan. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because when we look at what happens in our lives and we look at happening in world history, when we look at what's happening around the world today and all the anxiety that people are experiencing today because of economic conditions, because of inflation, because of what's happening in Gaza, because of what's happening in Ukraine, because of what's happening with just the instability like Ahasuerus of Kim Jong-un in Korea and all these kinds of things, it's very easy to just erect a wall between our theology and what we perceive and the anxiety that we experience as a result of that. Isn't that true? I, I find even in, in pastoring, you, you deal with Christians and they're dealing with problems, and sometimes if they've been raised in the church, you say, well, listen, do you believe that God is sovereign? Yes. Do you believe that God, in, in terms of our own catechetical confession regarding the providence of God, do you believe that God upholds and he governs? That is, he rules over all things. Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus is on his throne? He's not dead, but he's alive and he's ruling right now over all things. Yeah. Do you believe, as the Bible says, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why are you so anxious? <laughs> Aren't our times are in the hands of God? Why are you so anxious? Why do we get anxious? Because sometimes we don't live by faith, but we live by sight. Isn't that true? So you look at our story, and, and you look at this, and you go, okay, let's deal with the Hazarias. I mean... Okay, God's name is not even mentioned in this chapter. He's not even mentioned in the book. But whose name is mentioned in the first chapter? It's Ahasuerus. Who is he? He's the king. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got influence. He calls the shots. And orders are carried out. If they're not obeyed, he shuts them down. Who's the one in control in chapter 1? King Ahasuerus. But do you know who he is in reality? He's an instrument. He's just an instrument. In the hands of God. Isn't that what the Bible says? A.V., can you put on that first? Take a look at this. 
Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns that stream of water wherever he will. It's like having a puddle in your palm. And you go, do I want the water to go this direction or that? Oh, I'll go like that, I'll go like that. That's the way it is with God. The palm of God, he directs the king. Or how about the next one? Many are the plans of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's just two occasions in the Bible where we see what we call the sovereignty of God. That's just not theology. I mean, that's for, obviously, that's for our comfort. My friends, God may not seem to be working in the world or in our personal lives, but he is. He is. Even with the case of Jesus, there are many times in the ministry of Jesus, if you read the first four books of the New Testament, it appears as if if Jesus is struggling a bit and he appears to be a victim of circumstances beyond his control, right? So when you think of Jesus as a little child, you have King Herod who is hounding him, trying to kill him, or you find the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what are the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to do? They're trying to silence Jesus. Or you find Roman soldiers who want to get rid of Jesus. Or you find Satan himself who's trying to destroy Jesus and move him out of the picture altogether. Jesus is arrested. The disciples, all of Jesus' disciples flee. Peter denies him, not once, twice, but three times. It's Judas who betrays Jesus hands him over ultimately to the Roman officials. It's Jesus who, is, who suffers, who is crucified, who is put to death, who is buried. Each and every stage of Jesus' ministry, he seems to be a victim of circumstances completely out of his control. But you know what we find in the New Testament? Although these things we see and we observe behind the scenes, what Jesus is doing this, he's directing all affairs, is moving things forward, 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 yes, to his death, but also to his resurrection and to his ascension, all in order to fulfill the will of his Father, to take away our sin, to reign over the evil one, and to save us from depravity and the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin itself. This is what Jesus does for us. So whether you're looking at the Father directing all things in the story or you look in the life and the ministry of Jesus, God is never caught in the whim of human beings. But God is always, always directing all things. Jesus is directing all things by the word of his power. And that's a beautiful thing. Because we have to remember it's this Jesus who's on our side. And nothing, nothing in all of reality can separate us from his love and nothing can hinder us from moving forward in this life and taking hold of the gift of eternal life in heaven itself which Jesus has reserved for us. There is uh, an old uh, African-American spiritual who kind of touches on on the blessing of siding with this Jesus and the one who keeps us from being hindered in this life as we move forward. It's called Ride On King Jesus. Will you put it up there? Ride on King Jesus. No man can hinder me. 
Ride on, King Jesus, no man can hinder me, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the first and the last. No one works like him. Ride on, King Jesus, no man can hinder me. When I get to heaven, going to wear a robe, going to see King Jesus sitting on the throne, going to walk all over those streets of gold, go into a land where no one will ever grow old. No man can hinder me. African-American spirituals, oftentimes they are so simple, but they really do get the heart of things, don't they? Listen, we have a king who knows what we need, and our times are in his hands. Let us, let us believe that, and let us embrace that, and let us move forward in this life with confidence, knowing that whatever befalls us, particularly in this coming year, Jesus is not only on our side and goes behind us, but he goes before us and he holds our hand all of the way. That's going to be confirmed time and time again in the story that we consider over the next number of weeks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, O God, that you are not the mere extension of a man, but you are the sovereign God. Jesus, we confess you as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and you orchestrate all things, as we see in this chapter this morning, as we see in the book as a whole. And also, Lord, we have to confess as we see in our own lives. Thank you for the comfort that this affords us. Oh, Lord, may it only occasion greater gratitude and greater love toward you and a confidence, oh God, that at times it surpasses all understanding. Grant us that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.